Well, if you have a Bible, take it to the Gospel and turn it to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, to the passage that was just read. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the back on the round tables for you. You can get up now, take one, read it, it's yours. While you're turning to the Gospel of Mark, and if you don't know where that is, there is a table of contents for you in the front of your Bible. Uh, If you don't know, uh, or as you're turning there, I want to ask a question. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? Uh, In this passage, Jesus is angry. Twice he gets angry. Fig tree and in the temple. I don't know about you, but most of the time when I get angry, I get angry about things that I'm passionate about being under threat or maybe going to be taken away. When something that I love, something I'm deeply passionate about is under threat or is going to be taken away or hurt or violated, I get angry. And when I'm passionate about the right things, that's a righteous anger. When I'm passionate about the wrong things, it's an unrighteous anger. What makes you angry? What makes Jesus angry? What's he passionate about? Let's pray as we consider it. Lord, as we turn to your word and we look at this text, would you grant us eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus? For it's his word that is life. It's his presence that we need. Minister his presence to us by your spirit, we pray. In his name. Amen. Well, we've been on a series in the Gospel of Mark for the last year. And now, finally, we enter chapter 11, the final week of the life of this singular man. The verse uh, story in this chapter is the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna and waves of palm branches. And we went ahead and looked at that on Palm Sunday. But now the passage is after, we come to the passage after, where Jesus heads straightway to the temple. And on the way there, he passes a fig tree. He's walking, and the text says, verse 12, that he is hungry. And he sees this fig tree in the distance, but there are no figs on it, verse 13. And so when Jesus gets to the fig tree, he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, verse 14. The question that we all want to ask, but we're too embarrassed to ask, but that my daughter has no problem asking, because she did a month ago when we were reading the story, is, Daddy, why is Jesus being so mean? And it's a good question, isn't it? And why is Jesus so angry? It seems uncharacteristic. I mean, why does he curse this fig tree? Why does he go into the temple and overturn? Uh, tables. Why does he curse the tree, especially when verse 13 says that figs aren't even in season? Now that's strange. I mean, maybe he's hangry. (laughs) Have you ever been hangry? You know what I'm talking about when you get hungry to the point of angry? I was hangry the other day. When I'm hangry, I was really, uh, I wanted a grilled cheese sandwich. 
I love grilled cheese sandwiches. Um, and I'm not talking about like Wonder Bread and Kraft Singles. No, when I do a grilled cheese, I do it up. So it's like, it's like cheddar and chutney. Or another one that I really like to get is I like to get, um, I like to get Gruyere and I slice it up and I put it on sourdough bread. Uh, but to hold it all together, I get Trader Joe's fig butter. And I put the fig butter on both sides and I slap it together and then I put it in the pan and I grill it. Maybe with some bacon in between. <laughs> but you need that fig butter to hold it all together. You know what I'm saying? I love a grilled fig cheese sandwich. Do you know who else likes fig sandwiches? Mark. Because he actually just made one in this text. If you look in verses 11 through 14, we have the story of a fig tree. And then if you look in verses 19 following, he comes back to the fig tree again. But in the middle, in the middle of these two slices of fig buttered bread, he puts Jesus' action in the temple. Why? Because Mark is trying to teach us something that the the things that Jesus is doing with the fig tree and the things that he's doing in the temple, they are related, that they, they hold together. The answer is the fig butter. So what's going on here? Well, we have to look at Jesus' action in the temple if we're going to understand Jesus' action toward the tree. And so here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at Jesus' passion for the temple. And then I want to look at Jesus' preservation of the temple. First, Jesus' passion for the temple. The first thing Jesus is, does when he gets to Jerusalem is he heads straightway towards the temple. It's late, it's evening. He goes home back to Bethany, then he comes back the next day. And that's not surprising that he goes to the temple. The temple was the central religious symbol in Israel. It was the subject of many of their most cherished and beloved songs. It was the place where they believed heaven and earth met. It was the place of forgiveness of sins, where sacrifices were offered and they could be assured of forgiveness. And it was the place where God dwelled. At the temple is where they could meet with the living God because there God manifests his presence in a special way that he didn't anywhere else in the earth. And so it makes sense that Jesus would march straight to the temple. And did you see what he did when he got there? Verse 15, Jesus enters the temple courts. He begins driving out those who are buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Verse 16 says that he would not even allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts, that he shut the thing down. Now, why does he do this? Overturning tables. John adds, making whips. Why would he do this? Is he hangry still? I don't think so. That doesn't really comply with most of the evidence that we know about Jesus. Well, actually, we don't have to guess. Jesus tells us when he begins teaching in verse 17, and he says... That the temple shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you, you have made it a den of robbers. That's Jesus' problem with the temple. That's why he's so angry. He's angry because people are being robbed. 
well, what's this robbery about? Who's being robbed? How are they being robbed? Maybe this is about financial transactions and he's upset because there are money changers in the temple and there are, there are people selling things and maybe, maybe people are getting ripped off and Jesus is upset about this injustice. Is that, what go, is that what's going on? Is that the point of the story? No trade in the church. Do not sell coffee mugs. Do not sell books. Is that the point? Well, you know, Jesus isn't the first person to call the temple a den of robbers. Half a millennia before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah records God saying in Jeremiah chapter 7, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely? Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. God says, through the prophet Jeremiah, that his temple has become a den of robbers. And it's important to note that in Jeremiah, what the people are being robbed of is not financial transactions or monetary units. What they're being robbed of is the worship of God. Because the way the leaders are acting and the way the people are living mean that their worship is actually a facade. And so people are being Robbed of the worship of God. And that, I think, is what makes Jesus angry. Because Jesus is passionate about the worship of God. Because Jesus knows something, and that's this, that you and I and everyone else in this world, we were made to worship God. We were made to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's our heart's deepest longing. That's where our true satisfaction can be found. And actually, when you keep people from the worship of God, that is an injustice. It's inhumane. And so Jesus is outraged. I was heading back from a denominational meeting a few weeks ago, maybe a month. And as I was coming back, I got to hear the story of this fellow who had just come back from China. I say returned from China, but he was really kicked out. Because the authorities there found that he had Bibles. And his friends had Bibles. Bibles upon Bibles upon Bibles. And immediately he and his family were summoned to leave. They couldn't grab their stuff. They couldn't make arrangements. They couldn't do anything. They were deported immediately. And he had been living there for some 12 years. Can you imagine? It's the only home his kids had known. And and as I sat there and I thought about the trauma that they experienced, I also started to think about all those people who should have gotten those Bibles and who will never get those Bibles. When you hear a story like that, do you get angry? Do you get upset? Because I think we should. Because people are being robbed of worship. 
People are being robbed of knowing the living God. They're being robbed of being able to worship Him and know Him and coming into communion with Him. And countless people are being robbed by the Chinese government. And it should make us angry. Jesus says, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. But you know, it's just not just the Chinese government who can rob people of worship. We can rob people of worship. We can rob ourselves of worship. We can rob our kids of worship. Like when we prioritize sporting events over Sunday services. Or like when we prioritize staying up late and partying on Saturday rather than getting rested and coming early on Sunday. When we prioritize sleeping in and coming and hearing the call or worshiping at all. That's a low blow, Kyle. But isn't it true? Can't we rob ourselves of worship? What do you prioritize? What are you passionate about? Are you passionate about about the worship of God? That you make this a priority for yourself and for your family, meeting with God. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, Jesus says. He's passionate about worship because he loves you. Because he knows that's what you were made for. But wait a second. In this passage, who's being robbed of their ability to worship? I mean, people are worshiping. And these vendors that are there in the outer court of the temple where they set up, they're actually facilitating the worship of Israel. They're not hindering it. I mean, you have to think about it for a second. This is Passover season, and people are coming from miles and miles and miles around all over the eastern Mediterranean basin, and they're traveling a long, long way to get to Jerusalem. And it was absolutely impractical, completely impractical, to bring your sacrifices along with you. Could you imagine bringing like a pigeon or a dove on a, you know, a thousand-mile journey and still keeping up with that thing? or feeding it the whole way, or a lamb or a sheep. I and mean, what are they supposed to do? Well, rather than staying at home, what they would do is they would, they would sell their animal at home, they would sell their best animal, they would take the proceeds, they would go to Jerusalem, and then they would, even if they, they were from a different country or place, they had people that would exchange the money into local currency, and after they exchanged the money into local currency, then they could buy a sacrificial animal. And these vendors are making it very, very easy for the people to worship God. They set up right there in the temple. You didn't even have to go somewhere else. So it doesn't appear that these Israelites are being robbed of worship of God. I mean, this is making it more accessible. So who's being robbed? Well, Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And then he says, for all peoples, for all nations. And I think that's the clue. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56 and 57, we hear that when foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and who minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants 
when they come and they keep the Sabbath, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, God says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah is talking about a time when God would draw all nations to himself and they would come and they would worship and offer sacrifices to God and they would be acceptable to him. Isaiah is talking about about foreigners coming and worshiping God. Strangers, the nations. Because God has always had a global perspective with his temple. The temple was always supposed to have a global impact and a global outreach. In fact, when the temple was dedicated in 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. And then he says, For they will hear of your great name and of your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and they pray towards this temple. Then hear from heaven. Your dwelling place, Solomon prays. Do whatever the Ford asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel. And may know that this house that I have built bears your name. Solomon prays from the temple's get-go that it would have a global reach. That the nations would be drawn to it. And did you know that God has always intended that his salvation would be not just for some people, but for all people? Did you know that, that even the people that he calls by his name, that they are called to call? Blessed, bless, and chosen for the life of the world. That that's actually the identity of the Abrahamic people. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And the temple, its architecture, even its architecture was supposed to support this. Because in the temple, there were these three courts. There was the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. But then there was this outer court. And in the outer court, do you know what that court was for? The Gentiles. The nations. Any guess where the vendors might have set up their tables? In the court of the Gentiles. The court of the nations. So while, yes, they were making worship very accessible for Israel, they were turning away and making it near impossible for the nations. And that's why Jesus is so upset. That's who's being robbed. The nations of the ability to worship God. And he says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. You know a chapter after Jeremiah records God calling the temple a den of robbers? He speaks of Israel as a... Um, as a fruit-bearing vine, as a, well, a fig tree? Jeremiah 8.13, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there were no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. Hmm. Why does Jesus curse the tree? Because he's doing what prophets have done 
for centuries, becoming a living parable. And he curses this tree because the tree, the tree stands for the people Israel who were supposed to bear fruit, but were not bearing fruit. And the fruit that they were supposed to bear was to be a light to the nations. But instead of being this, this giant city that was set on a hill for all the world to see, they hid their light under a bushel. Instead of being a people that draw the nations to the self and a blessing to the nations, they kept the nations at bay. Instead of facilitating the worship of the nations, they were obstructing it. What about us? And what does this even have to do with us? Say, Kyle, great historical point. Interesting tidbit about the first century world. What does this have to do with me? We don't have a temple. We don't have sacrifices. What are you talking about? The nations. What in the world does this have to do with us? Well, that brings us to the preservation of the temple. It's important to note that when Jesus, when Jesus goes into the temple, that he ceases for a moment all activity. And it was an indication of what he was going to do. And it's important to note that when he, when he speaks to the fig tree, he doesn't cleanse it, which some people call this the cleansing of the temple. Jesus does not cleanse the temple. He curses the temple. May no one eat fruit from you again. Which brings this really important question. If the temple's cursed, how are people going to meet with God? How are people going to come to have a relationship with him? How are they going to be assured of their salvation and know forgiveness and life and peace? How are they going to experience God? What's well, interesting that what happens in verse 19 following, they're walking by and Peter notes that the fig tree has withered. And did you notice what Jesus says after that? It says verses 22 and 23, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. I love the mountains. Like, I love the mountains. My favorite vacation is the mountains. And the reason why it's my favorite vacation, because the mountains that I love are not these mountains. I got to admit. And sometimes I've thought, like, I wish that those mountains could be taken and thrown into the sea, uh, and we could replace them with the Rockies. Because on the Rockies, I could, I could ski. And I love to ski. And so maybe... Will you believe with me now? Will you believe with me that those mountains can be thrown into the sea and we can get the Rockies there? Because Jesus says, that whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown to the sea and does not down his heart but believes, he says it shall come to pass and it will be done to him. So, so maybe we should just believe. Will you believe with me? But which mountain is Jesus talking about? Notice Jesus doesn't say any mountain. Do you see that? He doesn't say mountains. He says this mountain. Well, which is this mountain? Is it the San Ynez Mountains? Well, where is he? He's in Jerusalem. The city set on a hill, Mount Zion. And he's coming out of the temple, 
which is on Mount Zion. And so when Jesus says that this mountain will be taken up and thrown in the sea, he's talking about that mountain, the Temple Mountain, Jerusalem. And guess what? In 70 AD, it was. When Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, and they took the bits of it and threw it into the sea. But wait a second. If the, simple, if the temple's been judged, if it's been destroyed, how do people worship God? How do they relate to God? How do they get assured of their forgiveness? How do they know life and peace? How do they enter into his presence? Have faith in God, Jesus says. And then verses 24 and 25, he goes on, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will receive it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus, right after saying that, says, believe in God. And then he starts talking about intercession and forgiveness and approaching God and relating to God. In other words, he's saying that that there's still a way to access God. That there's still a temple. Have faith in God. It's the community of faith. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul asked, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that you are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells in you. Y'all. The church is the New Jerusalem. It's Mount Zion. It's the holy city. It's Pentecost. Pentecost. The day that we celebrate the Spirit coming down out of heaven and resting on the disciples. You know, that's not the first time that the Spirit has come down in history. No, it came down in the very beginning of creation when the Spirit hovered over the water. And, and the Garden of Eden, it was a temple. Do you know that? And God's glory filled it. And then later on at Mount Sinai, we saw the smoke and the fire. These manifestations of God's Spirit and His presence come down on Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was a temple. And then God commands the Israelites to build a tabernacle. This kind of movable Sinai because it looked a lot like the mountain. And then when they built it, we see smoke and fire come down and they fill the tabernacle. It was a temple. And then when God's people stopped becoming RV people and they settled into the land and they built God a temple, and what did we see again? The smoke and the fire and they came down and they dwelt and they settled in God's temple. And then when the people of God stopped worshiping God and turned to other gods. When they stopped being a light to the world and God judged them and sent them into exile, do you know what happened? His spirit and smoke and fire, it left the temple. And it never came back again. There was another temple that was built, Ezra and Nehemiah, but we don't see smoke or fire. In fact, what we see is elders weeping. You know why they were weeping? Because it says that the glory of the new temple did not match the glory of the old. We have a temple, but we don't have the fire and the smoke and the presence of God. We don't have God coming back into the temple again until a few days after Palm Sunday, 
a man named Jesus walks into the temple. Curses it. Establishes his authority over it. And it was the event that got him crucified. The text says that after that they plotted his death. That was the, th- that was the straw that proverbially, no, forget that, broke the camel's back. That's what got him killed. But three days later, he rose again. And he hung around, witnessing, manifesting himself to people for 40 days. And then, and then 50 days later, 50, Penta, Pentecost, the disciples, they were, they were in a room, scared, gathered together. And they were praying. And then all of a sudden, flaming fire and smoke came down and settled on their heads. And the Spirit came down again into the temple. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And do you know what they did after that? They got up and they went out of that house and they started preaching the gospel to the nations that were gathered there each in their own language, so people heard them and they started believing. And all of a sudden, we have a reestablished court for the Gentiles. All of a sudden, the people of God again are a light of the world, a city set on the hill. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? You are the one. In this community, this is where heaven and earth meet. This is the community where people find forgiveness of sins and assurance of pardon. This is the community where people come to meet with the living God and know his presence with us and for us here. And this is the community that is to be a light to the world, a city set on the hill, into which God will draw all the nations to himself and through whom so that they might know and Solomon's prayer might be answered. How great is your name, O Lord. And they might revere him like his people Israel revere him. That's our charter. That's who we are. And so we are the temple of the living God, then I think that that means a couple things. I think that it means that we need to adopt a global outlook. John Stott said, we must be global Christians with a global vision because we serve a global God. You are the temple and you are meant for the nations. In fact, you are the nations. And that's one of the things that I think that it starts with having a global outlook is realizing that we're part of the nations. That actually those Israelites who went and preached, that that spread out to Gentile and Gentile and Gentile. And, and no matter how, I keep going to these, these missions conferences and they keep saying, well, we're not talking about Jerusalem because this is Jerusalem. We're talking about Samaria and the ends of the earth. And I keep going back and looking on Google Maps and other things, and I can't find a map that locates Jerusalem and Santa Barbara. Not one. The only Jerusalem I know is on the eastern Mediterranean basin. I think that's the only one that's ever existed. So guess what? You're the nations at the ends of the earth. And God has brought you to himself by his grace. And he has incorporated you into his worldwide people. 
And God, he doesn't privilege one people over another or one cultural over another. And that means that we need to have a global perspective. And part of that means that we need to realize that we're the nations like any others. And we have to stop thinking of an American-centric Christianity. As if we're the ones who teach the nations and we're the ones who take the gospel to the nations. No, no. Did you know that actually like uh, the majority of missionaries are being sent from Africa to here? Did you know that the worldwide Anglican communion, that the majority of it, uh, a quarter of it is in Nigeria? And did you know that we need to learn from them? And we need to learn from Christians in China. And we need to learn from Christians in Egypt. And we need to learn from Christians around the world because we're not their parents. They're our brothers and and our sisters. And we're part of the nations. And adopting global perspective, I think that means like reading world news and not having an American-centered view on world news. Like read news from other people's perspectives to understand what your brothers and sisters are going through and what, how they see the world. And, and, and realize that while it is absolutely appropriate in any place, to contextualize the gospel to that particular cultural context, we have to be careful that we, don't real, that we don't think that that strategy, which is very important, is somehow privileged by God as far as that cultural expression of the gospel. Here's what I mean. Uh, Western music, God does not privilege over African music. God does not privilege the way we worship over the way other Christians worship. He doesn't privilege American culture over others. And we need to be hospitable to the nations. I I had a friend who was um, doing seminary at Westminster Theological Seminary in um, Philadelphia. He's from England. And every day, he led, every Sunday, he led worship in a church. And after he would lead an invocation or a prayer or whatever, he would go back. And it was one of those churches where the pastor or the intern sits down up front. You know the ones I'm talking about? And every time he would sit, my Welsh friend, right next to an American flag. And he kept thinking, what is this doing here? And am I, do I belong? Like, why is there an American flag there? We're not an American assembly. Or... or Another time, I was at uh, Tyndale House in Cambridge. It's a research library where people come from all over the world to study, but it's in England. And the majority of people there are Americans. And we had times of prayer. And during one of the prayers, someone was praying that God would protect our troops and that we would win the war. They were an American. A British Christian very kindly came up to the person afterwards and said, Who is the we of which you speak? We have this American-centered view of Christianity. We think that, that, that that's us. We're Christians, and it's a transnational community who serve the Lord together, who have been brought in. That, that God values expressions from every tongue and tribe and nation and people. Having a global perspective, I think that means that we need to know what's going on in the world and what God's doing and sign up for these newsletters that you can get. Sign up for newsletters of our global partners. Sign up for newsletters. Uh, There's great resources out there to find out what God's doing around the world. 
Having a global perspective, I think, means being concerned for unreached peoples. That's what the Gentile courts were for. People who had not been reached by the gospel. That's who Gentiles were. And many of you have been praying for a long time for what we call the 1040 window. Because in the 1040 window, there are a lot of people who have never heard the gospel and are unreached by the gospel. And a lot of you have been praying for so long for that. And I've got good news for you. Because you've said, God, make a way for people in the 1040 window to hear the gospel. I have good news for you. He is answering your prayers. Do you know how? They're flooding into Europe and to America. And not answering your prayers the way that you thought that he would. But he's answering your pr- their prayers. And the converts, the Iranian and Syrian converts in Germany are astounding. They're filling the churches. God is answering the prayers. Are we going to listen? Are we going to heed the call? Have a global perspective by reaching the nations right here. Did you know that thousands of students, international students, come here every year? UCSB, City College, English language schools. Over 80% of them never step foot in Americans' home. And they want to. And as Christians who know the value of hospitality and the mission and ministry of God, we have an opportunity to invite them into our homes to talk to us because they want to. So consider hosting a student if you can. Or consider just meeting them or gathering with them. Or get involved in International Students, Inc., which will connect you with international students for around the world. If you want to know how, talk to Phil and Sophia afterwards. They're sitting over here. They will tell you gladly how you can have conversations about life and the gospel with international students who are going back to their home countries to spread the gospel. And we can reach those countries in ways that we never could before through this. Have a global perspective. You are a missionary here. If we are the temple of God, we have to adopt a global perspective, but we also have to create space for outsiders There was a court for Gentiles, and there was always supposed to be a court for Gentiles so that they could come and investigate and see what the Lord is doing. And we need to make sure that we create space in our community and in our personal lives for Gentiles, for the nations, for people who do not know God, for unbelievers. What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like giving up on convenience for comprehensibility. That's one thing. Oftentimes we use jargon in the Christian church. And that jargon makes things easier. Jargon anywhere makes things easier. It makes things simple. But the problem with jargon is that when you use it, it's insider language. And those outsider, outside don't understand. And they don't feel welcome. And so take the time to explain. And don't assume that everyone who is in our midst is a Christian. Instead of saying we all believe, as if everyone here we assume believes, we say... Christians believe. And if you're a Christian, that's you. And if you're not, we're glad you're here. Create space for unbelievers. Create options for them to be here and to be an unbeliever. When you talk to people after the service, don't assume they're Christian and certainly don't assume they're Reformed. Please. (laughs) Ask questions like, so, what do you think about Jesus? Did you grow up in the church or not? Are you just checking things out? Did you come with a friend? Do you think he's the son of God or do you think 
He's an interesting moral figure or teacher, religious leader. Where, Where are you on the spectrum? Wherever you are, we're glad you're here. There's space for you, and we want to meet you where you are. We have to create courts for Gentiles. Because we are the temple of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in you? And we will not fail. Did you know that? Because Jesus, he is passionate about his temple. And this isn't the last time we see the temple in the Bible. This is not the last time we see the temple in the Bible. No, at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, we read this. John writes, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, like the glory that filled the temple and its radiance like most rare jewels like jasper is clear as crystal. And then he goes on to to describe this city and he describes it, its dimensions, and the dimensions are the same dimensions as the temple that Ezekiel promises and prophesies. So the city is a temple, and yet, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And then John goes on and he says, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, like in Eden, like the original temple, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and the land through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Jesus is passionate about his temple. He is passionate about worship. He is passionate about the worship of the nations. And he will ensure that his glory fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. And here's the question. Here's the question. Are you going to participate? Or are you going to ignore it? Because he invites you in. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And God's spirit dwells in you. Amen.